it's a new year and it's also time to start a new sermon series. Uh, we've covered a lot of different genres from our Bible, since, at least since I started here in 2019. We've preached through many New Testament epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Galatians, Ephesians. And then we worked through an Old Testament historical narrative in 1 Samuel. And so there's another genre in our Bibles. It's, again, there's more to it than just this. But there's one very key, very important genre that I want us to begin that we have yet to cover. And that is a gospel. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. And when you are there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Thus saith the Lord. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. The Gospel of John, according to what we just read, is a book. Alright, he says, many other things were done that are not written in this book. This is one of the books of your Bible, but that's kind of broad because there's lots of books in the Bible. And so we have categorized them slightly differently to help us understand their purpose and their nature. And so the Gospel of John, as I just said, is referred to not just as a book, but specifically as a gospel. Most of your New Testament, there's a couple books that are sort of hard to categorize, but the vast majority of your New Testament falls into one of two categories. It either falls into epistles, which are letters, or it falls into gospels. And so what is a gospel? We have four of them in our Bibles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all considered gospels. What makes something a gospel? A gospel book is any book that is a historical eyewitness account of Jesus' life. A gospel is any historical eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And so that is why we refer to what in your Bible is called John or the gospel according to John as a gospel. Because as John just said in these verses, he is writing historical eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. He tells us in verse 30 that he saw and knows that Jesus did many other things which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is claiming, I've seen Jesus and I've, I've seen all the many things that he's done and I have curated a list of key moments, key events that I have written down for you so you can know who Jesus is. So clearly, uh, the Gospel of John is not claiming to be an exhaustive category, uh, categorization of every last thing Jesus ever said or did, right? He's very clear there were many other things that Jesus did. As a matter of fact, this is kind of a funny way he ends the book. Just so you know how emphatic the Gospel of John is, that this is just a tiny sample of the life of Christ. Look at it, how he ends the book in John 21, verse 25. This is the conclusion to the entire book. And he says this. 
Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Right? So he uses this hyperbolic sort of exaggerative language to again really beat us over the head with this idea that please don't think John is an exhaustive account. Jesus did a lot of things in his life, especially during his three-year ministry. John has selected only a small sample. But the fact that they are nonetheless selections of eyewitness accounts, we refer to this as a gospel. Now, what's interesting about our gospel, though, is that uh, the author of John chose some very interesting things to talk about in Jesus's life. As a matter of fact, his selections are so unique that we actually categorize John slightly different than the other gospels. So again, John is a gospel. We have four gospels. But within your Bible, you have a group of gospels that are referred to as the synoptic gospels. So if you're ever reading a theology book or you're on Facebook and you hear someone reference the synoptic gospels, there are only three synoptic gospels, and that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John is a gospel, but it is not a synoptic gospel. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, why have we done this? Why would we leave John out from this category called synoptics? Well, the reason is because the synoptic gospels are all basically telling the exact same stories. There's obviously some discrepancies here and there, but generally speaking, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're reading the exact same stories of Jesus. They've all selected the same events and then just told them from slightly different perspectives. Not contradictory perspectives, but different perspectives. So the synoptics are telling you the exact same story. John just kind of goes rogue and tells you a whole bunch of other stories that are not in the the synoptics. Uh, So there's a lot of differences between John and the synoptics. Um, So one of the, we typically, when we think of these differences, we both include things that John puts in, which are different, as well as things that he leaves out, which are different. It's, again, it's very, very different in a number of ways. Let me just give you some of those. Um, In terms of his exclusions, there are many things in the synoptics that John never tells us about. Key moments, really important things. For example, John says nothing about Jesus' transfiguration. John says nothing about Jesus' baptism. Um, John uh, does not mention the institution of the Lord's Supper at all. And he even leaves out the calling of the disciples. Uh, And that's just a handful of things that are found in the synoptics that are not found in John. But like we said, not only does he leave out key moments, but he includes a lot of moments that we consider pretty important that are not in the synoptics. Um, For example, Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. That's in John. It's not in the other Gospels. Uh, Jesus meeting with Nicodemus and telling him that he must be born again. That's a pretty famous dialogue. It's only in John. It's not in the synoptics. Jesus evangelizing the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and telling her that one day the whole world will worship God in spirit and truth. That's only in John. That's not in the synoptics. And then on top of this, what really puzzles people is some of John's chronology, meaning the order of events, he gets different than the synoptics. Now, we'll we'll cover that. Is that a problem? Is that a bad thing? Does that make John unreliable? We'll cover that as we go through the sermon series. But there's, there's no doubt that John's timeline of events is different than the synoptics. Uh, So that's just a handful of reasons why John sort of is a little unique 
from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's, he's telling about Jesus, but he's telling different stories than Matthew, Mark, and Luke are telling. So that's what this is. Even though it's different stories from the synoptics, nonetheless, what are we going to be studying in this year and beyond? We are studying a gospel book, which is an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. Now, every book has an author, right? So who wrote ours? Who is the author of this gospel? Uh, the book does not name its author specifically. A lot of books in the Bible don't do that. Some do, some don't. Uh, but the book does not tell us specifically who the name is, although it does tell us something about its author. Look again at chapter 21 and look at verses 20 through 24 with me. Chapter 21, look at verse 20 and 24 through 24. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the say, saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So the closest thing we get to a name of who is the disciple, who is the eyewitness that wrote this book, well, it's simple. It's the disciple that Jesus loved. That's who the author is. But which one of the disciples is the one that Jesus loved? Again, we could begin to narrow this down. We know it's not Peter, right? Because Peter is the one who said, what about him? So it's not Peter. And we know it's not Judas, <laughs> right? That goes without saying. Uh, and so when we look at who is this disciple, who is the one that had this very close relationship with Jesus, so close that he's sitting next to him at every meal, he's leaning on his chest, he's even called the one that Jesus loves. And Jesus really had a trio of three disciples who were kind of like an inner group from the rest. And James, John, and Peter. We know it's not Peter, and so it's most likely John or James. And all of the other internal evidence and external evidence has made it crystal clear for the last 2,000 years that the Apostle John, Jesus' disciple John, wrote this gospel. And that is why we call it the gospel according to John. John is the disciple that Jesus loved. Every, by the way, every historical record we have identifies John as the author of this gospel. One thing that's pretty cool. So that means all the church fathers, the earliest ones living close to the events, all say it's crystal clear that John wrote it. Another thing that's interesting is um, the earliest manuscripts we have of these gospels, uh, they typically uh, were um, put into the Bible under one book. There was just the gospel. And it included all of what we call our four gospels. Originally, it was all just one book. But as early as they started to separate them, they included names. And from the moment of that separation, we only have John ever being referred to as the author of this book. So all of our best external evidence, eyewitnesses close to that event, as well as putting pieces together from inside the text, has made it pretty crystal clear up until modern skeptical scholarship. It's, it's been overwhelmingly clear that John is our author. So who is John? The Bible describes him as being one of two sons of a man named Zebedee. John is a son of Zebedee. Um, 
John was obviously called by Jesus to be a disciple, and he later on became an apostle. And we know that he is not only the author of this book, but he's also the author of 1 through 3 John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the Revelation, the, the book of the end of your Bible, the book of Revelation. Um, John and his brother James, another interesting fact we know about them from Scripture, they were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. John is one of the sons of thunder. This is most likely a reference to having very aggressive personalities. And we get a little hint of that in the synoptics. Jesus goes near Samaria and something happens and John says, rain fire, kill him, burn him, destroy him. And Jesus kind of has to rebuke him. So this is most likely a reference to their real go-getter aggressive personalities. But to me, it's kind of interesting because when I read John, whether it's this book or the epistles, he seems very fatherly. He actually seems very loving and gentle. And so I suspect that um, living a life with Jesus domesticates you a little bit. I think Jesus tamed him a little bit. Uh, John was a Jewish disciple of Christ, but he conducted most of his post-resurrection ministry in Ephesus. So John was Jewish, but he was very familiar and sort of enculturated into Greek culture. And that's going to be really important as we go through the book. Um, so he was a very Greek Romanish Jew, if you will. Um, John was eventually, because of his faith and because of Roman persecution, exiled to an island called Patmos. This was an island that Rome would send prisoners to to banish them from, from Rome. And uh, specifically, Patmos was known for where they would banish like religious fanatics. Um, and so John was one of the religious fanatics who was banished to Patmos. And he tells us in Revelation that on the island of Patmos is where he received his revelation and wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, and it's also most likely the place where he died as well. Um, historically, we have pretty good evidence that all of the apostles were martyred to death except for John. John, he was persecuted, but he probably died of natural causes in Patmos. So that's who our author is, John, the son of Zebedee, one of the disciples who became the apostle John. That's who wrote the gospel. When did he write it? Well, since John was an eyewitness, right, that helps us limit when this book was written to some degree, right? It wasn't written last year, it's safe to say. Uh, it was obviously a first century book. But when exactly it was written, like if you're looking for a really exact date, I'm not going to be able to give that to you. It's, this is one of the most disputed datings in all of the books of the Bible. I can give you a pretty safe range though. And I think any time from 65 AD to 81 AD is a really safe date for the Gospel of John. You will find extremes on both ends. You will find people who date John to the early 100s, and you will put, find people who date John to the early 50s. But those are usually pretty extreme. So I think the middle range, 65 to 81, is a pretty good, uh, a safe estimate. Um, I, now, I, if, you, if you're looking for my personal opinion, so I'm not, thus does not say the Lord. This is my personal opinion. I hold a kind of a minority position of among Christians where I think every New Testament book was written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So I personally would put John sometime before 70, like in the 68, 69. But admittedly, that's really disputed. Um, so, but like I said, really any time from 60 to 80, you're, you're in a safe zone in terms of whether you can defend it or not. But regardless of the specific date, uh, it is unanimous among the people who study these things that this was the last of the Gospels to be written. 
Um, your Gospels were originally put in your Bible according to the order that we thought they were written. So we thought Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Uh, and that's basically stayed the same, although now most people think Mark was probably the earliest. That's kind of become the predominant view. So if we were to reorganize the Bible, it would be Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. So there's some debate about the synoptics, but it's overwhelmingly affirmed that John was the last gospel to be written. And the only reason I say that is because, you know, we live in a day and age of information. You might be reading books about John. You might hear people say stuff on social media. And sometimes you'll hear people refer to the fourth gospel. And I just want you to know that they're talking about John. If you read a book or hear someone talk about, well, the fourth gospel says otherwise, or I'm studying the fourth gospel, it's referring to John because we know that John was the fourth of the four gospels written. Now, that's all important sort of background information, but really this is where our sermon gets important. What I, I think is important for this context is the why. We've looked at the who, the what, the where, the when. Why was this gospel written? I think this is really where it gets important for us. And, 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 and we have an advantage because unlike a lot of books, John has just come out and told us why. Right? He's very, very clear why John wanted to write this. Look at verse 31 with me again, back in chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 20, 31 is oftentimes referred to as John's purpose statement or his thesis statement, right? This is where he just crystal clear comes right out and tells us, this is why I wrote this. So we know what are we trying to get as we go through the gospel of John? What are we trying to get out of it? What, what, what needs to be the outcome as we read through the gospel of John? And he's told us, and I'm going to break it up into two parts, right? So we have one thesis, but there's two parts in, thesis, in this thesis. The first reason John wrote this is for faith in Jesus. Part number one is faith in Jesus. John wrote this gospel so that whoever reads it would believe in Jesus, one of the things you're going to find as we go through this gospel is John is all about Jesus. If you're a person in this room and you're just, you're not interested in Jesus, then I hate to break it to you, you are not going to like this sermon series. John is all about Jesus. Jesus is the center and focus of the gospel in each and every chapter. As a matter of fact, you could say, who is Jesus is the answer the gospel of John set out to answer. That, or it is the question Gospel of John set out to answer. Who is Jesus? That's why he wrote. And this is why, by the way, in just sort of our Christian evangelical culture, it's really, really common for whether you're an unbeliever or a, like a brand new Christian, for Christians to recommend you read the Gospel of John first. A lot of times people are interested in Christianity or they become a Christian and they're like, okay, I know two, two very basic aspects of the Christian life is read your Bible and pray. Most people know I'm at least supposed to do that. So read my Bible. Oh my goodness, where do I begin? Do I begin in the minor prophets? Do I just do read to end? Like, where, where do I begin? And obviously, you're not going to go wrong starting anywhere. But typically, we recommend the most helpful place for a new believer to start is the Gospel of John. And the reason we do that is because no one is promised tomorrow. No one is promised tomorrow. 
I don't know when God is going to take this person. And so I want them to get to Jesus as clearly and quickly as possible. And John is a good book to do that because he straight up tells us, I wrote the book to give you Jesus. (laughs) I want you to have Jesus. So if you have a friend who's interested in Christianity, try to get them to read through John. Let them encounter Jesus. As a matter of fact, the clarity that John presents Jesus in is actually another one of the reasons why we separate it from the synoptics. If you were to read through all four Gospels and you were to compare Matthew, Mark, Luke to John, uh, one of the things I think you would recognize is that the synoptic Gospels make you do a lot more work. They make you do a lot more work. Meaning, the synoptics are primarily interested in just telling the story and then letting you connect the dots. Right? So Jesus did this. What does that mean? You get to figure it out. Jesus said this. What does that mean? You get to figure it out. John is not interested in letting you do that work. He's just going to come out and tell you what it means almost every time. Some people have described uh, the synoptics as interested in the events, while John is more interested in the theology under the events. John is considered a little bit more theological in that sense. That's why what you'll find is John records a lot of dialogue for us. It's not even a lot of events. It's a lot of dialogue. John is very interested in explaining and presenting Jesus in a very clear, articulated way. Uh, another, uh, by the way, I don't think just you would notice. I think Christians have always noticed this from the beginning because uh, one of the most interesting facts that we have around these Gospels is from very, very early on, the Gospels were being represented by pictures. There was three animals and an angel, and each Gospel got a different animal or an angel to represent it. And John has always been historically represented by an eagle. John has almost always been represented by an eagle. Uh, Early Christians loved artwork and they loved art and they were good at it. And so they loved to represent John with an eagle. And now we don't know exactly why, but the consensus seems to be because in the first century, the eagle was sort of symbolic for high flight. The eagle was the king of the birds, and it soared and flew higher than the birds. Now, I don't know scientifically if that's true. If there are birds that fly higher than the eagle, I don't know. But the eagle was sort of considered the highest flying bird. And so the, the reason we think John got the eagle is because there is a sense in which, compared to the other Gospels, John's going to take you higher. He's going to take us even higher into heaven. He's going to lift us up even higher into the mysteries of God. He's going to lift us up even higher into the mysteries of Christ. It is a very theological book. I'm not saying that the synoptics aren't theological. I'm not saying that they cloud Jesus. Obviously, anyone can read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and know Jesus and get saved. But there's just something unique about John's presentation of Jesus. Now, this might lead you to ask, why? Like, is John smarter than the other disciples? Is he better than that? Like, why would John's gospel stand out in this, with this clarity, with this theological precision? And I think that we, we have actually good, it's technically speculation, but I think it makes sense when we understand the culture John was in to understand why his gospel would be so different. So if you remember, I talked about how John was living in Ephesus. He probably wrote this from Ephesus. We don't know for sure. In John's audience is different than the synoptics audience. And you'll note if you've ever written a paper or if you've ever given a presentation, um, your audience vastly dictates how you present something. 
You can have an academic present something like a research paper to other academics, and it's going to be really sophisticated, boring language. But then if you were to ask to go to like a, a middle school and tell the middle schoolers what he's been studying, he's going to present it. He's not just going to read what he wrote to the professionals. They're not going to get it. He's going to present it, right? So your audience dictates how you speak, how you write, things like that. And so it makes sense that John would write so differently than the synoptics because he's writing to a different audience. The synoptic gospels were primarily written to the Jewish people. People who uh, maybe didn't believe in Jesus, but they were Jews and they were steeped in the Old Testament literature. They were steeped in Jewish tradition. And so the synoptics don't have to do that much work. They can say something and they know their audience is going to get it. Oh, I I know that. That's a reference to Isaiah. Oh, that's Malachi. I get it. They're going to make those connections. John is living in Ephesus. The primary group of people he's writing to are what we call Hellenistic Jews. Um, Hellenistic is just the fancy description of the Greco-Roman culture of his day. So when we talk about Hellenistic Jews, what we're talking about are people who are Jewish in their ethnicity, but in terms of their culture, they're far more Gentile. These are people who live outside of Israel. They live um, deep into the Gentile cities. Um, They're part of what's called the diaspora when the Jews were split up. And they stayed. They didn't return to Israel. So their family lineage has been outside of Israel for a long time. And so they are very enculturated. They have assimilated into Roman culture. So these are Jewish people who would know the Bible, but they would not be nearly as steeped in or experienced with Jewish tradition, Jewish thought, and the Jewish scriptures. So in other words, John is basically writing to Gentiles. And so it makes sense that he's going to tell different stories and he's going to go out of his way to explain the stories because he knows these Hellenistic Jews are not going to pick up on my hints the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke knew that their audience would. Does that that kind of make sense? And so John's purpose then, we could summarize this, John's purpose is to present Jesus especially to people who maybe are not incredibly steeped in Jewish culture, in Jewish scriptures. And so again, that's why this gospel can be so helpful for for you and me, for our Gentile neighbors, for our unbelieving neighbors, because while there is certainly a lot of connections to the Old Testament, I'm I'm not saying it's not helpful to know the Old Testament, Um, but a lot of the people that we evangelize are maybe not Hebrew Old Testament scholars. And so it's more helpful for them to get a gospel that's sort of uh, making it easier on them. And that is John's purpose. He wants to take people who don't know Jesus, who maybe don't know the scriptures very well, and give them an encounter with Jesus, a true saving encounter with Christ. And so that is how I want you to think of the rest of this sermon series. I want you to prepare yourselves to meet the Lord. Prepare yourselves to meet the Lord. We are going to encounter Jesus Christ. And I think that this really becomes more prevalent when we take our two verses and we read them in context. This is really interesting. I want take a step back and go to verse 26 with me. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. 
Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And then he gets into his purpose statement. Why is this context powerful? Why is it so emotionally, at least for me, moving? Because notice what's happened. Jesus is resurrected. Some of the apostles have seen him. And they go and tell the other disciples. But Thomas rejects their testimony. That's why Thomas is sometimes referred to as doubting Thomas. He didn't believe them. And Thomas told them, I refuse to believe what you have to say until I actually see him. I want to see his scars. I need, I need physical, biological evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Until then, you're just, you're just seeing ghosts. I don't know what happened. You're hallucinating. You're lying. I don't know. I need to see Jesus. So Jesus condescends and he gives Thomas the evidence he's looking for. He shows up. He says, touch my side. Look at my scars. Here I am. And then Thomas does the right thing. He repents and believes. My Lord and my God. But notice Jesus sort of slightly rebukes him for this. He doesn't rebuke him for faith, but he does sort of gently rebuke him. You needed to see me to believe? Really? And then who does Jesus go on to bless? Blessed are those, verse 29, who have not seen and yet believed. And then John tells us, that's why I wrote this book. Because everyone reading this book doesn't have an opportunity to see Jesus. He ascended. He's gone. You're not going to see him. You're not going to talk to Jesus. Are you able to still believe? Are you able to believe in a man you've never met? Are you able to believe in a man you've never seen? And that's why John says, yes, through my book. In other words, John is telling us we are going to have an encounter with Christ that is just as compelling and just as good as if you had actually met him in person. You're going to be able to have the same faith in the same person that Thomas had who lived and walked with him. Reading the Gospel of John is just as good as shaking Jesus' hand and introducing yourself to him. You are going to encounter Christ. You're not going to encounter an ideology. You're not going to encounter a worldview. You're not going to encounter a person. You are going to, or forgive me, you're not going to encounter a religion. You're going to encounter a person. You are going to meet Jesus in this book. Prepare yourselves. You're going to meet the Lord. John is going to introduce us in a personal way to Jesus. And his goal is to tell us just the right stories with just the right explanation that you will be compelled to believe in him. And what does it mean to believe in him? Does it mean that you just approach this like historical facts? Yeah, there was some Jewish man named Jesus who died and rose again. No, that's not what faith or belief means in the Bible. Faith in the Bible means trust and love. We are not going to approach this like historians. We will, but we're going to approach this book as more than historians. We're going to approach it as theologians. We're going to approach it as sinners who need a Savior. We are going to meet the Lord. And we're going to meet Him, and we're going to hear from Him, and we're going to see the things He's done, and it's going to be compelling. It is going to stir in our hearts and say, I want everything to do with this man. I want to follow Him. I want to live for Him. I want to trust Him. I want to love Him. The Gospel of John wants you to believe in Christ. The Gospel of John wants you to put your faith in Christ. But what does that mean, Christ? Right? That's, that's who Jesus is. He says in verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? Well, Christ is a Greek word. Or it comes from a Greek word. Which makes sense because again, who is John writing to? People enculturated in the Greco-Roman world. He's writing to Greek people, essentially. 
So he uses a Greek word, which is actually a translation of a Hebrew word. He doesn't want to use the Hebrew word because he's speaking to Greek speakers. So he uses the Hebrew ti- or the Greek title of a Hebrew word, Messiah. So when you, whenever you see the word Christ in your Bible, it's the same thing as Messiah. It's just the Greek translation. Christ, Messiah, same thing, Greek, Hebrew. So what is it specifically that John wants you to believe? He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, right? So you can tell your children when we say Jesus Christ, right? Christ is not his last name, right? It's his, ti- it's his title, Jesus the Christ. He is Messiah, Jesus, Jesus, Messiah, Christ, Jesus, or Jesus Christ. And what that word Messiah means is anointed one. And specifically, God's anointed one. What John wants us to understand is that for hundreds and hundreds of years, God had been promising his people a special person. A very special person who would come and change the world. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's these shadows and types and prophecies of this very special anointed one who would come from God and save the world. And John wants us to know that that's who Jesus is. He's, he, in other words, Jesus didn't come in a vacuum. It wasn't like some guy just showed up and did all these amazing things. And we're like, wow, I guess I better follow him. He came as the fulfillment of God's promises. He came within the context of God's covenant. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited Christ. So in order to believe in Jesus rightly, you need to believe that he's the Messiah. But here enters in for John what is going to become one of the most important themes throughout the whole book. There's something else that's very special about the Messiah. More so than just that he was prophesied for a long time. What does it mean to be the Messiah? John describes that for us again. Faith in Jesus Christ means that you believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. You're going to find that that title is, is the theme of the Gospel of John. That's why I've entitled the sermon series, The Eternal Son. In order to truly believe in Jesus, you need to believe that he is God's son. What does that mean? What does that entail? That's what the sermon series is for, right? So hold your breath. We're going we're gonna to get into that for 21 chapters. But at the outset... If you're looking, what am I trying to get out of the Gospel of John? John is going to explain to you what it means to be the Son of God. And he's going to tell you that Jesus is that. (laughs) He is the Son of God. In order to rightly believe in Jesus, you need to believe that he's the Messiah, which means he is God's only begotten Son. The first reason John wrote this Gospel is so that you might believe and trust that Jesus is the Son of God. But there's more to just believing in Jesus that John wants us to find in the gospel. We're not just going to encounter Christ, but when we encounter him and believe in him, there are consequences to that. And John wants us to experience not just faith in Christ, but everything that comes with faith in Christ. And what is it that comes with faith in Christ? Again, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's second purpose is that our faith in Christ would cause something what he calls life. John wants you to have eternal life. This is another theme in John's gospel, the theme of eternal life. What John calls life is synonymous with what we as American evangelicals often refer to as salvation. They're the same thing. Salvation, eternal life. John wants you to be saved through your faith in Christ. He wants you to have life and life everlasting through faith in Jesus. And so what John is implying here 
something he's going to make crystal clear throughout the book, is that eternal life only comes through Jesus. If you're not in Christ, if you don't believe that he's the son of God, if you're outside of his name, you don't have life and you can't have life. John understands he wants you to have eternal life and there's only one way to get there. There's only one door into heaven and it's in the name of Jesus the Christ, the son of God. John wants you to have a saving relationship with Jesus and so we see John's gospel is very evangelistic. John is trying to save people with this book. He's trying to convert people. He's trying to take people from the kingdom of darkness and get them into the kingdom of light. He wants to introduce Jesus to us, not just so that we will be smarter than other people, not just so that we'll know historical facts, not just so that we can cross our theological T's and dot our theological I's. He wants you to know Jesus so you can have life. This isn't just about your head. This is about your soul. John wants us to believe in Jesus and have life eternal. So we can put these two parts together in something really easy to remember. Although verse 31 itself is pretty easy to remember. So you could probably just memorize that verse. But if you wanted something a little bit more simple, right? So you leave today and your neighbor asks you, what did you learn in church today? What was the sermon about today? Well, the sermon today, I think, can be summarized with this. That you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what I want you to know. And this is what John is going to try to teach you in every chapter of this book. That you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God.